0: This is the Proactive IT Podcast. This week, the latest in IT and cybersecurity news, plus what is Emotet, how do you stop phishing, and the HIPAA breach stats for 2019. This is episode 14. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Proactive IT Podcast. Each week, we talk about the latest in tech and cyber news, compliance, and more. We also bring you real-world examples to learn from so you can better protect your business and identity. This podcast is brought to you by Nwaj Tech, a client-focused and security-minded IT consultant located in Central Connecticut. You can find us at NwajTech.com. That's N-W-A-J Tech all right, let's start with the Patch Tuesday update. Of course, we reported all the patching that occurred last week, all the patches that were released last week, I should say. I don't know if you patched yet. If you didn't, you should probably get on that. Um, last week, June, uh, January 14th, not June, that's uh Freudian slip, I guess. Um, we had the Windows 7 end of life, Windows 2000 server, server 2008 end of life. Um, so you'll want to move on to a different version of microsoft windows if you have either of those in your environment and of course the, that means the last patching update was released for the, both of those systems um juniper had an update juniper network cisco had a security update uh, microsoft office had updates firefox is should be updated to 72.0.1 google chrome should be updated to the latest version, which I believe ends in .130, um, Citrix. There's patches available for the Citrix vulnerability in Citrix ADC and Citrix Gateway. The final one should be released today, so you should have patched. They also released a scanning tool to see if you had been victimized by the vulnerability that did exist. Uh, the only the only security update that was released this week, I believe, was the. Well, besides Citrix, was the uh, Samba release. So if you use Samba in your environment, you you will want to update that. And yes, the latest version of Google Chrome is 79.0.3945.130. And that was um, to also address the vulnerability that was discovered in Microsoft that we reported last week. You also had Adobe, VMware last week, Intel. Um, So quite quite a bit of updates last week. So you'll want to take care of those ASAP, and you'll be all set with your patching. Alright, so here's the latest and greatest in cybersecurity and compliance news. Um, first up a on bleeping computer reported pretty much everywhere now. New US bill wants to assign state cybersecurity coordinators. So they want a cybersecurity coordinator for every state. Four US senators have introduced a bipartisan bill that will require the Department of Homeland Security to appoint cybersecurity effort coordinators in every state to orchestrate cyber attack response and remediation efforts, and to improve coordination between federal, state, and local entities. Cybersecurity state coordinators will have to ensure that local, state, and federal entities collaborate and share resources during cybersecurity threat prevention and response processes according to the Cybersecurity State Coordinator Act of 2020, bill introduced by Senators Margaret Hassan, John Cornine, Robert Portman, and Gary Peters on January 16th. Cyber attacks can be devastating for communities across our country, from ransomware attacks that can block access to school and medical records, to cyber attacks that can shut down electrical grids or banking services. The bill's sponsor, Senator Hassan, said, "The bipartisan bill I introduced would take a big step forward in improving communication between the federal government, state, and local localities, as well as strengthening cybersecurity preparedness in communities across the country." Uh, so we have seen multiple municipalities get hit with cybers with uh ransomware and uh, other attacks you know las vegas new orleans louisiana as a whole multiple municipalities in california and baltimore all in the last year um just to name a few texas there's been a bunch and so this position would help coordinate the effort in um mitigating that risk number one and number two um having a resolution in place in the event that that occurs that a ransomware attack occurs at that level I don't know what that would mean for for it said healthcare and there was quite a few schools I think it was over a thousand schools last year um, and there's already been a few this year Um, I don't know what that means for businesses and healthcare because it did mention healthcare so that will be interesting to see how they plan to coordinate that Um, so I don't know. Maybe a new job position for some of you out there. I'm curious to what it pays. It sounds like it would be a quite a bit of work. So something to think about. Microsoft on uh, this also being reported everywhere. Microsoft leaves 250 million customer service records open to the web. So Microsoft left 14 years of customer support logs exposed. Which works out to 250 million records to the um, left open on the internet for 25 days. The account info dates back as far as 2005, and as recent as December of 2019, and exposes Microsoft customers to phishing and tech scams. They left this open on cloud databases. Um, they were data, yeah, cloud databases. So Microsoft said it is in the process of notifying affected customers. It's a lot of customers to notify. The Comparatech security research team said that it ran across five Elasticsearch servers that had been indexed by Search Engine Binary Edge, each with an identical copy of the database. The database contained a wealth of phishing and scam-ready information in plain text, including customer email addresses, IP addresses, and physical locations, Descriptions of customer service claims and cases, case numbers, resolutions, and remarks, and internal notes marked confidential. So that's interesting. And a note, in short, it's everything a cybercriminal would need to mount a convincing and large-scale fraud effort, Comparatech researcher Paul Bischoff wrote in a posting on Wednesday. The data could be valuable to tech support scammers, particular, he said tech support scams entail a scammer contacting users and pretending to be a Microsoft Support representative these types of scams are quite prevalent. Yes I've received those calls myself and even when scammers don't have any personal information About the targets they often impersonate Microsoft staff Microsoft Windows is after all the most popular operating system in the world now uh, Microsoft does say that the exposure was limited and that a lot of the information was redacted Um We'll, you know, this is obviously developing, so we'll we'll wait to see what happens with that. Um, I will say this with the the scammers out there. Um, Microsoft does not proactively call people. Now this means that you you um, might start receiving a phone call and they will have more information about you, so it'll seem more plausible that that it is Microsoft. Microsoft does not proactively call people and they're not going to alert you to a virus on your computer um so just something to think about before you take that call and and entertain them i've i've run into several people already who have entertained these scammers and and uh one of them within a matter of minutes they had the the uh person's social security number so it's 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 uh it, they're sophisticated they get you and they will um they will steal from you so uh, we have an update from the OCR, OCR issues guidance to help ensure equal access to emergency services and the appropriate sharing of medical information following Puerto Rico earthquakes. So you've probably heard there's been numerous earthquakes in Puerto Rico, all in the you know high fives, to low six on the Richter scale. Um, some of the citizens are sleeping outside just because they're afraid their house might collapse. Um, a lot of issues. I think there's no electricity right now. So the OCR has issued some guidance to help ensure equal access to emergency services and appropriate sharing of medical information. Following the earthquakes Earthquakes in Puerto Rico, the Office of Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services remains in close coordination with federal partners to help ensure that emergency officials effectively address the needs of at-risk populations as part of disaster response. To this end, Emergency responders and officials have consider, should consider adopting as circumstances and resources allow the following practices to help make sure all segments of the community are served. Employing qualified interpreter services to assist individuals with limited English proficiency and individuals who are deaf or hard of hearing during evacuation response and recovery of activities making emergency messaging available in languages prevalent in the affected areas and in multiple formats such as audio, large print, and captioning, and ensuring the websites providing disaster-related information are accessible, making use of multiple outlets and resources for messaging to reach individuals with disabilities, individuals with limited English proficiency, and members of diverse faith communities, considering the needs of individuals with mobility impairments and individuals with assistive devices or durable medical equipment and providing transportation for evacuation identifying and publicizing accessible sheltering facilities that include accessible features such as bathing toileting eating facilities and bedding avoiding separating people from their sources of support such as service animals durable medical equipment caregivers medication and supplies placing persons with those disabilities in integrated shelters to the extent possible and stocking shelters with items that will help people to maintain independence, such as hearing aid batteries, canes, and walkers. Being mindful of all segments of the community and taking res- reasonable steps to provide an equal opportunity to benefit from emergency response efforts will help ensure that disaster management in all areas affected by Puerto Rico e- earthquakes is successful. Um, so that's from the OCR. Um, you know, HIPAA, of course, HIPAA does apply in Puerto Rico. It is part of the United States. However. It's a challenge with situations like this, so um most importantly is to to take care of the patients, take care of anybody who needs the help. It is health care as I've stated in many at many occasions on many occasions, so take care of them and um make sure everybody's okay and um hopefully the earthquakes they they appear to have stopped, so hopefully it'll stay that way we have um an interesting article on in ZDNet. This is timeline of events surrounding the Bezos phone hack. So, if you haven't heard, Jeff Bezos' phone was compromised May of last uh, May of 2018, actually. So almost two years ago, and um, sounds like he was not aware of it for a while. So we're gonna go through this. Um, almost impossible to believe. Broke yesterday that Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia Mohammed bin Salman was somehow involved in the hacking of Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. According to reports from The Guardian and Financial Times, a Saudi royal family member, commonly referred to as MBS, allegedly sent a booby trap video to Bezos via a WhatsApp message last year. No, it's actually not last year. It's May 1st of 2018. According to a report into the hack, Put together by FTI Consulting, the video supposedly exploited a WhatsApp bug to download and install malware on Bezos' phone, which was an iPhone, which then proceeded to exfiltrate data from Amazon CEO's personal iPhone. So uh, I mention iPhone because a lot of people still have this common misconception that iPhones and Apple in general can't be hacked and can't be um, hit with malware. and That is absolutely not true, and this is the prime example. A day later, the entire affair still seems like a bad Hollywood movie script. However, the reality is that there's a lot of context and background to these accusations, along with a long history of enmity and antipathy from the side of Saudi prince. The Bezos hack is linked to the Amazon CEO, who is the owner of the Washington Post, which is important here, the newspaper that employed Jamal Khashoggi, Khashoggi, an ardent critic of Saudi Arabia's government and the crown prince in particular. So here's the timeline in October 2013 Bezos buys Washington post December 2016 at a Washington based think tank Khashoggi makes critical remarks about Donald Trump's ascent to the US presidency Soon after the Saudi regime canceled Khashoggi's column in the al-hayat Newspaper and ultimately banned him from writing appearing on television and attending conferences Khashoggi eventually left Saudi Arabia so um, you may know that trump does have a relationship with the saudis so um not that that comes up again and not that this is a political podcast it's not but it's something to to note the washington post on september 2017 the washington post publishes khashoggi's first column saudi arabia wasn't always this repressive now it's unbearable a piece highly critical of crown prince November of 2017, the Saudi Royal Guard acquires the Pegasus 3 spyware from NSO Group, an Israeli company that sells surveillance tools to governments around the world, which to me, again, is interesting that Israel is selling to uh, Saudi Arabia. February 7, 2018, the Washington Post publishes a column by Khashoggi entitled Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince, already controlled the nation's media, now He's squeezing it even further. Another piece critical of the Saudi Crown Prince, February 28, 2018, Khashoggi publishes another piece in the Washington Post entitled What Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Can Learn from Queen Elizabeth II, again criticizing the Crown Prince. March 21st, 2018, Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos is invited to attend a small dinner with the Crown Prince in Los Angeles. April 3rd, 2018, Washington Post publishes another column by Khashoggi while the Crown Prince is in the U.S. in which Khashoggi writes, replacing old tactics of Tactics of intolerance with new ways of repression is not the answer. April 4th, 2018, Bezos attends dinner with the Crown Prince in the course of which they exchange phone numbers that correspond to their WhatsApp accounts. May 1st, 2018, a message from Crown Prince account is sent to Bezos through WhatsApp. The message is an encrypted video file. It is later established with reasonable certainty that the video's downloader infects Bezos' phone with malicious code. The video message is believed to be the same as the video... That they included uh, a video of, in a tweet. Following the execution of the malicious video file, investigators saw a spike of data being sent from the, the device, a 29% jump in traffic consisting of more than 6 gigs of egress data, meaning data that goes out. Prior to the infection, Amazon CEO was an average of 430 kilobytes a day egress data. Following the hack, Bezos' iPhone maintained a daily average of 101 megabytes a day egress data for the following months. Suggesting a constant state of surveillance. May 2018, the phone of Saudi human rights activist Yahu- Yahuwah Assyri is affected with malicious code. Assyri is in frequent communication with Khashoggi. June 2018, the phone of Saudi political activist Omar Abdulaziz, and I'm sorry I'm saying these names, I'm, I'm butchering these names, is infected with malicious code via a texted link on WhatsApp. Omar was in frequent communication with Khashoggi. June 2018, the phone of Amnesty International official working in Saudi Arabia was targeted for infection via a WhatsApp link that was determined to lead to an NSO group-controlled website. June twenty-third, twenty 2018, two phones belonging to Saudi dissident Ghanem al-Masarir Masas- al-Dasori, a Su- Saudi human rights activist and popular political satirist active on YouTube, are targeted via a text link leading to NSO infrastructure. October 2nd, 2018, Khashoggi is killed by Saudi government officials. You may remember that. Washington Post begins reporting on the murder, publishing every ever expanding revelations about the role of Saudi government and the crown prince personally. October 15th, 2018, a massive online campaign against Bezos begins targeting and identifying him principally as the owner of the Washington Post. In November, the top trending hashtag in Saudi Twitter is boycotting Amazon. The online campaign against Bezos escalates and continues for months. November 8, 2018, a single photograph is texted to Bezos from the Crown Prince's WhatsApp account, along with a sardonic caption. It is an image of a woman resembling the woman with whom Bezos is having an affair months before Bezos' affair was known publicly. <coughs> February 9, 2019, Be- Bezos publishes a Medium blog post describing an attempt by the National Enquirer to extort and blackmail him with nude photos. Bezos hints at a connection between the National Enquirer and the Saudi government. February 25, 2019, the Daily Beast runs an op-ed by Layad al-Baghdadi entitled, How the Saudis Made Jeff Bezos Public Enemy Number 1, detailing mounting evidence that the de facto ruler of the kingdom has been trying to punish Bezos for the fierce coverage by the newspaper, the Washington Post, of the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. March 31st, 2019, hundreds of major news outlets around the world report on the allegation that Saudi Arabia had access to Bezos' phone and obtained private data. The allegation was first published in the Daily Beast op-ed, Gavin De Becker, entitled, Bezos' investigation finds the Saudis obtained his private data and is subsequently reported by New York Times, CNN, Al Jazeera, BBC, Bloomberg, Reuters, and others. April 1st, 2019, the entire Saudi online campaign against Bezos stops abruptly, strongly indicating inauthentic and coordinated hashtags and tweets. April 25th, 2019. Intelligence officials in Norway advise Al-Baghdadi of a CI warning that is being targeted that he is being targeted by the Saudis and move him from his home. Intelligence sources believe the threats are connected to Al-Baghdadi's work on Bezos. May 1st, 2019. Al-Baghdadi is advised by a source in Saudi Arabia that the Saudis have successfully targeted his phone. September 20th, 2019, Twitter suspends 5,000 Saudi accounts for an inauthentic behavior, including that of an advisor to the Crown Prince, Saud al Qatani. October 1st, 2019, Bezos attends the first anniversary memorial for Khashoggi held outside Saudi consulate in Istanbul, where he was murdered. October 2nd, 2019, the Saudi online campaign against Bezos resumes after being dormant for months, specifically citing Bezos' attendance of at the memorial event and citing And again, calling for a boycott of Amazon. October 29, 2019, Facebook sues the NSO NSO group in U.S. federal court for trying to compromise the devices of up to 1,400 WhatsApp users in just two weeks. November 5, 2019, U.S. Department of Justice charges three people with serving as Saudi spies inside Twitter. One of the three had left Twitter and gone to work at Amazon. November 14, 2019, Facebook confirms that sending a specifically crafted MP4 video file to a WhatsApp user is a method for installing malicious spyware exactly as was sent to Bezos. So we did talk about that a few, well, a couple months ago now. Uh, December twentieth, two 2019, Twitter suspends 88,000 linked, linked, uh, 28, uh, I'm sorry, Twitter suspends 88,000 accounts linked to the Saudi spying case, saying that the accounts were associated with a significant state backed information operation originating in saudi arabia january 21st two days ago the guardian and the financial times published articles claiming the message that hacked bezos phone came from the crown prince's phone number the articles are based on a still private report but put together by fti consulting a company bezos hired to investigate how the national Enquirer got hold of his nude photos and then yesterday january 22nd saudi arabian government denies the media reports United Nation calls for an investigation into Saudi Arabia hacking a citizen of another country. Vice's motherboard leaks the full FTI Consulting private investigative report. The report is available for download, and there's a link here. On the same day, New York Times reporter Ben Hubbard also claimed the Saudis targeted his phone. Hubbard stands to publish a book on the Crown Prince's rise to power. So uh, this is on ZDNet. I will there will of course be a, a link in the show notes if you want to look at the full report. Um, there is a lot of information there so and then finally we have um, from HIPAA Journal the December 2019 healthcare data breach report I'm just gonna highlight a few things there were 38 healthcare data breaches of 500 or more records in December um, which is an increase of 8.57 percent over November however the number of records has fallen from 607,728 to 393,189 from November to December. Now, I don't know if that's that's really that important because um, I don't know that, that attackers have a way of knowing how many records a healthcare provider has. Maybe they do, but I don't know that they do. It was a bad year for healthcare data breaches in 2019, the second worst year ever for healthcare data breaches in terms of number of patients impacted. So this year that we did see total in 2019 41,232,527. That is the second worst year and that um, outpaces the previous three years combined. Um, the only year that was higher was 2015 when there was 113,307,814 records breached. Um, number of health breaches of 500 or more this year was 505, which is the highest year in record. Next, uh, the next highest year was last year, 2018, which was 371. Interestingly enough, two, uh, 2015 had the lowest number of breaches of 500 or more, but that just means that there were large breaches. Largest. So here's the December numbers, the 10 largest breaches for December of, of 2019, Truman Medical Center Incorporated. Um, all of these are covered entity except for one, and I'll tell you which one that is. So the covered entity, the healthcare provider, type of breach was theft, and one hundred fourteen thousand four hundred sixty-six where individuals were impacted. Adventist Health Simi Valley was also a healthcare provider hacking IT incident sixty-two thousand. Roosevelt General Hospital hacking IT incident twenty-eight thousand eight hundred forty-seven. Healthcare Administrative Partners hacking IT incident seventeen thousand six hundred ninety-three. Cheyenne Regional, oh sorry, Healthcare Administrative Partners is the one that was a business associate. Cheyenne Regional Medical Center Healthcare Provider, hacking IT incident 17,549. SEES Group, LLC, was a hacking IT incident 13,000. Petty Health, D DBA, it should be PD Health, sorry, PLLC, DBA, Children's Choice Pediatrics, hacking IT incident 12,689. Sinai Health Center, Health System, Hacking IT incident, 12,578. Colorado Department of Human Services, t- hacking IT incident, 12,230. Texas Family Psychology Associates PC, unauthorized access disclosure, 12,000. So that is the December roundup, most of them being hacking or IT incident. And um, I would venture that a good percentage of those will be phishing. Um <coughs> The entities that were affected by December 2019 in total, not just the top 10, in total, 28 of them were a healthcare provider, four were health plans, and six were business associates. So, business associates need to get their act together. Causes of healthcare data breaches we have one improper disposal, two of them theft, three of them were loss, 11 unauthorized access or disclosure, and 21 hacking IT incidents. That was just for December. And the location of the breached information, one was on a laptop. That was probably the stolen one. Two other portable electronic devices may have been stolen as well. Three others, I'm not sure what others would be. Seven of them were network servers, so those would probably probably be hacking or IT. 17 of them email, and that is by far the largest number that's going to be phishing. So 17 breaches by phishing in December seven electronic medical records, four paper films, and two desktop computers. And then we talk about the 2019, there were 10 HIPAA enforcement actions. Um, West Georgia Ambulance, with which we've talked about extensively, 65,000. That was a settlement. Corunda Medical Center... Corinda Medical LLC, eighty-five thousand settlement. Centara Hospitals, two point one seven five million, which was a settlement. So imagine what the original penalty was. Was uh, what the amount was. Texas Department of Aging and Disability Services, one point six million. That was the actual penalty. There was no settlement there. University of Rochester Medical Center, settlement for three million. So again, imagine what the original penalty was. Jackson Health Center, $2.154 million, civil monetary penalty. Elite Dental Associates, 10000 settlement. That was simply a response to a review on Yext, where enough information was posted in the response to the review that it was considered PHI. So $10,000 for a review response. Bayfront Health St. Petersburg, settlement for $8, 85000 Medical Informatics, Engineering, settlement for 100000 Touchstone Medical Imaging, $3 million settlement. So again, imagine what the original fine was. $3 million was the settlement. Um, so interesting stuff here. Again, we see there's one dentist on here. There's one ambulance service on here. I don't see any pharmacies. However, I did see a post on a Facebook group I belong to that showed a picture of a Walgreens showing uh, in the open prescription bags with, uh, patient's name, name of the prescription, address, things like that, and the person was able to take a picture of this. That is a HIPAA violation. That there wasn't reasonable, a reasonable attempt to take care. That information was not made if it was readable by someone, um, in out in the open. I do have a question that was sent in. A healthcare practice is trying to save money when it comes to IT. They want to know if they. C- have to use G Suite or or Office 365 or if using a free pop imap account is acceptable. So I've talked about this before. Um in order for email to be considered HIPAA compliant it needs to be able to be encrypted. A free pop imap account does not it does not have that capability for the most part. There are a few And you could also get third-party encryption services i don't think you can do that with pop email i don't know that it's possible but imap you you could because g suite does do it um the other thing that needs to happen for email to be hipaa compliant is that the provider of the email the email service provider needs to be able to sign a baa a business associate agreement that is so a free pop or imap account is not going to sign a business associate agreement g suite and office 365 will and that would make them HIPAA compliant. Um so the way it works is you have IT, whether it's internal or, or an MSP such as Nguage tag, and they will say, Okay, we're gonna set your email up on G Suite or Office three sixty five. I have clients that use both. Um and the business associate so if I'm using the Tech as the example, so I would have the business associate agreement with the healthcare practice, and then a business associate agreement would be, need to be in place with G Suite or Office 365, and if you don't know, G Suite is Google, and Office 365 is Microsoft. Um, And so they would need a business associate agreement that I would keep as I'm, they're the downstream as I'm providing the service and managing the service for the healthcare practice. If it's internal IT, then it's just, a business associate agreement with G Suite or Office 365 in a healthcare provider. So, um <clears throat> you cannot use a pop or, or free a free pop or iMap account. I've seen um healthcare practices using AOL, uh, Hotmail, Yahoo, Gmail. This not it's not HIPAA compliant and I've and I've seen law firms doing I've seen law firms using free cable cable um email p- accounts and um you know they don't need to be hipaa compliant but at the same time you you're going to want a certain level of security you're not going to get from using free pop or imap accounts so hopefully that answers that question for for the uh question asker okay on the nuage tech blog that's nwaj tech dot com slash blog um we have Recent blog post by me 11 steps to mitigate the risk of phishing attacks. So phishing is 90% of all data breaches are are start with a phishing attack and we see it all the time in HIPAA Healthcare, we see it all the time in law firms. We see it a lot. So I wanted to go through the steps You can read the whole article on on our website as I as I mentioned um, 11 steps to mitigate the risk of phishing attacks. First is education, what I consider to be the most important step to phishing mitigation. Education is critical to reducing the risk of phishing attack. Many of the phishing attacks that are reported show that the employees were victimized. who were victimized had very little knowledge of how to identify a phishing attack. There are several things you can look to, for to identify a phishing attack. Some of the more common indicators are poor grammar, spelling, Sent from a free email account. Use of emotional cues to get you to do something, usually fear. Unsolicited email, like password changes or an invoice. URLs are not the real URL. PayPal.com versus P-A-Y-P-A-1.com. The website is missing images or has poor grammar. Employees in IT should also be able to provide awareness, alerting on potential attacks. For example, I recently alerted clients to a new Microsoft phishing attack and what they look like. Strong password policies. We've gone over this a thousand times. Password policies are uppercase, lowercase numbers and special characters. The longer the better. Um, Don't use passwords like 12345 or password123 or things that are you know, if if your username is Scott Gumbar, don't use Scott Gumbar as your password etc. Three, MFA or 2FA. Um, It's just unbelievable the number of, of people that are still not using MFA and I talked to a uh, insurance agent yesterday, and he said, that's no, it's just too much work, which is insane. But okay. Four, anti-phishing software or service. So I use Iron Scales. There are others out there. Five, anomaly-based malware protection, as I've talked about um, sporadically here and there. We'll talk about it a little later in this episode. Six, DNS and web filtering. Again, filter out the traffic that is not healthy for you. In other words, and you can filter by categories too, but most reputable DNS filtering softwares will now filter out um, suspected phishing sites as well. As a matter of fact, Google Chrome can do it now. So, Phishing simulation. So this is essentially you sending a, a phishing attack to your employees or to your clients to see how they respond to it. And then if they do click on something that they shouldn't have clicked on, you can then report. You know, you get a report, and then you can educate further as needed. should not be punitive. It should be purely for education. Think before you click. Um, This is a program that I'm developing. Before you click on any link or attachment, think about it. Did you ask for the email? Do you know the sender? Can you type the website address manually rather than clicking on it? Do you even shop at the store or bank at the bank? nine verify before you click ten have a response plan which is so important and very rarely exists and then finally 11 audit so you should regularly audit your email accounts realistically you should audit all accounts where are they being accessed from when are they being accessed how are they being accessed some of my clients have web access disabled on top of mfa and strong passwords others have alerting setup so i know If when they're accessing the account, if something seems off, we question it by reaching out to the client. So, you know, for the business, I use Office 365. I get an alert anytime, uh, I get an alert anytime that my account logs in as this is just an example. Every time my account is used to access Office 365 on the web or, or is added to Outlook or anything like that, I get an alert, um, letting me know that. So that is uh, 11 tips, 11 steps to mitigate the risk of phishing attacks. Hopefully you find that helpful. All right, last bit of news this morning. Just learned about this late yesterday. Critical MD hex vulnerabilities shake the healthcare sector. So -hmm. critical, Critical vulnerabilities have been discovered in popular medical devices from GE Healthcare that could allow attackers to alter the way they function or render them unusable. A set of six security flaws have been collectively named NDHECS. Five of them received the highest severity rating of, on the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, 10 out of 10. The final one has a rating of 8.5 as per the National Infrastructure Advisory Council's scoring scale. Uh, reported by CyberMDX, a healthcare cybersecurity company. The vulnerabilities affect GE CareScape patient monitors, Apex Pro telemetry, server tower systems, and clinical information center CIC Pro systems. CIC Pro systems are used to view in real-time physiological data and waveforms collected over the local network from patient monitors. So it's kind of like managed services for medical, for healthcare. They also help manage the Distributed monitors and check when the patient was admitted, synchronized time and date, as well as setting alarm thresholds. Interfering with this product can affect how it works, allows changing the alarm settings, and can lead to exposing patient health information. Below is a list of the vulnerable systems. So here's the list of the vulnerable systems Central Information Center CIC versions 4.x and 5.x, CareScape Central Station CSCS versions 1.x 2.x, Apex Pro Telemetry. Server and Tower, versions 4.2 and earlier. CareScape Telemetry Server, versions 4.3 4.2 and earlier. B450 Patient Monitor, version 2.x. B650 Patient Monitor, versions 1.x and 2.x. B850 Patient Monitor, versions 1.x and 2.x. The researchers found bugs when checking the use of de- deprecated web min- versions of open port configurations that could pose a risk in GE's CareScape CIC Pro workstation. Common to all flaws is that exploiting them provides the attacker a direct path to target the device and allows them to read, write, or upload data. The MDX vulnerability bundle credited for the discovery of the MDX bugs in Elad Lou's head of research, or is Elad Lu's head of research at CyberMDX. He says that exploitation avenues depend on the infected systems, Affected systems design and configuration. One of the bugs identified as CVE 2026961 and affecting CIC, CSCS, and APEX server consists of exposing the private key in the SSH server configuration. The same key is distributed across an entire line of products and could enable remote management of the system via an SSH connection, allowing code execution. Hard con- hard coded credentials in the Windows XP embedded XPE operating system is Another critical vulnerability, CVE-2026963, as it allows direct access to the device via the server message block, SMB network protocol. That um, that has been a vulnerability for quite some time, the SMB. Um, so the article is on Bleeping Computer and goes on to talk about the vulnerability there. But if you're using any of those devices, just, there are things um, you're going to want to do, including network segmentation. It doesn't look like there is a patch as of yet. Um. You, you will want to you know do whatever you can so here you go the company provides the following network management best practices MC and IX networks are isolated and if connectivity is needed outside the MC and IX networks a router firewall is used to allow only the necessary data flows and block all other data flows MC and IX router firewall should be set up to block all incoming traffic initiated from outside the network with exceptions for needed clinical data flows the following ports should always be blocked for traffic initiated from outside the MC and IX networks, TCP port 22 for SSH and TCP and UDP ports 137, 138, 139, 445 for NetBIOS and SMB, as well as TCP ports 10,000, 52, 25, 5,800, 5,900, and 10,001. Restricted physical access to central stations, telemetry servers, and MCI and IX networks. Default passwords for webmin should be changed as recommended that's kind of scary if you haven't password management best practices are followed so um, it sounds like another case of weak passwords and poor network segmentation uh, and of course blocking vulnerable ports Um, so take care of that if you are if you're using any of these machines if you're using any machine change the default password at the very least change the default password All right, that's going to do it for the news
1: All right, so it's
0: time for our hot topics. <clears throat> First up, this is a blog on com. That is, uh, of course, I, I'm the owner of Nuage Tech, which is a an MSP specializing in compliance type businesses. So I have this blog, two options when the OCR issues guidance, listen or pay. So we just went over a few minutes ago the, the pr- breach statistics for the year and for December of 2019. When we talked about the ones for the year, we talked about how some of them were settlements and some of them were just the civil penalties. <clears throat> when Typically when there's a, e- either a settlement or a penalty, um, it's after the OCR comes in and offers technical guidance, technical advice. And if you don't listen, then you are asking for trouble. So that's what we're talking about in this um, this blog post. The OCR recently issued guidance to help ensure equal access to emergency services and appropriate sharing of medical information following Puerto Rico earthquakes. And so I start with that because it's to point out again, there's some guidance, need to pay attention to it. And we talked about, we actually talked about that guidance earlier in this episode. So this got me to thinking about all the HIPAA settlements that were agreed to after the OCR issues technical advice. I talked about the settlement with West Georgia Ambulance Company issued on December 30th 2019 on a recent episode of the Proactive IT podcast so I have it linked there I believe it was last week's episode they had to pay 65,000 for an incident in 2013 so almost 7 years ago and so they just now paid the inc- they just now paid a fine for that the incident was initiated with a laptop that went missing allegedly fell off the back of an ambulance which also means that there was no encryption on that laptop now being 2013 okay you know it wasn't as Um, Encryption wasn't talked about as much at that point. It is now, so there's no excuse for it today, and it's still happening. The laptop was not encrypted, which does violate HIPAA. The OCR came in to do an investigation and discovered a lot of HIPAA compliance issues. The OCR issues technical advice. Technical advice essentially means here's what you need to do to correct the HIPAA compliance issues we have found. The ambulance company ignored them. When the OCR followed up and discovered that the technical advice was ignored, they took further action. This action eventually turned into a $65,000 settlement and a two-year 2, two year corrective action plan, which will cost more than the $65,000 settlement. The initial fine was probably a lot more than the final settlement. So the corrective action plan means the OCR is now going to oversee and make sure that you meet certain landmarks and say, you know, you accomplished this on a certain date, you accomplished this in 30 days, you accomplished this in 60 days. And if you don't, then you're looking at more problems. HHS just wants to ensure patient privacy and access is protected. Health and Human Services OCR has stated on several occasions that it's not about the fines. If it was, it would be easy to just fine healthcare practices and business associates. There are numerous instances of the OCR supplying a healthcare practice with technical support, and that's the end of it. If you are provided technical support from the OCR, it pays to listen. It really, really does. If it really is all about patient care, are you protecting it really is all about patient care. Are you protecting their health information and sensitive data? Are you providing access to the health information in a reasonable manner when requested? <coughs> what is technical support from the OCR? Technical support from the OCR is not like technical support from IT. What they're really doing is telling you how to fix your HIPAA compliance issues. For example, in the case of the ambulance company, they uncovered that the laptop was not encrypted. When they investigated further, they also discovered access controls were not in place and reasonable reasonable security was not being utilized to protect PHI, and there was no real HIPAA compliance program in place. The OCR advised the ambulance company what they needed to do to resolve these issues. West Georgia Ambulance essentially ignored the advice. In doing so, they became negligent. That ended up costing a small business of 64 employees $65,000, plus two years of OCR monitoring them to ensure they put a HIPAA compliance program in place. Guidance and technical support from OCR should be taken seriously. The OCR and I think a a lot alike. I will give you information and advice you need. It's up to you to act on it. I provide technical advice all the time. Honestly, it gets ignored probably 80% of the time, and sometimes it ends up costing the business owner a lot more in the long run. OCR's main objective is to, to make sure patient care includes protecting patient information and making it accessible to the patient when they want it. You have you may have heard of the CIA triad. No, it's not a special ops group in the CIA. It stands for Confidentiality, Integrity, Availability. What this means is patients' health care information should remain confidential, the integrity of that information should be protected, and, if, and it should be made available to the patient when needed. The OCR just wants to ensure the CIA triad is followed by healthcare care providers and business associates. They just want to make sure patients are cared for. It is called patient care, after all. If they provide guidance or assistance in any manner, whether it's a webpage, official letter, audit, or email, you should take it very seriously. The next step would cost you significantly more if you don't. And if, at the end of the day, it's all about patient care, whether you are a healthcare practice or a business that supports them. So that's uh, that's my soapbox for the week. And... Um, you know it's important because often, you know, especially you know, a lot of healthcare practices won't ignore you. But you talk about the outlying healthcare type practices like dentists, chiropractors, ambulance services, pharmacies, and they're not paying attention to the advice that's being—it's freely available on the internet. So uh, it's it can get pretty ugly. Um, next up, we going, we're going to talk about Emotet. And the reason I'm going to talk about Emotet is there's a CISA alert about increased Emotet malware activity. Uh, I'll read that first. So, so CISA is aware of a recent increase in targeted Emotet malware attacks. Emotet is a sophisticated trojan that commonly functions as a downloader or dropper of other malware. Emotet primarily spreads via malicious email attachments and attempts to proliferate within a network by brute-forcing user credentials and writing to shared drives. If successful, an attacker could use an Emotet infection to obtain sensitive information. Such an attack could result in proprietary information and financial loss, as well as disruption to uh, operations and harm to reputation. So CISA recommends users and administrators adhere to the following best practices to defend against Emotet. So here's the best practices that they recommend. Block email attachments commonly associated with malware like DLL and .exe. Block email attachments that cannot be scanned by antivirus, such as zip files. Implement group policy, object, and firewall ro- rules. Implement an antivirus program in a formalized patch management process. And I would recommend a, an antivirus program that uses anomaly-based signatures. Anomaly-based, um, not signature-based, anomaly-based um uh, protection implement filters at the email gateway and block suspicious IP addresses at the firewall adhere to principle of least privilege again this is this that is key because I see it all the time when we see when we see the HIPAA breaches that involve employees stealing information it's always they weren't supposed to have access implement a domain-based message authentication reporting and conformance validation system this is more commonly referred to DMARC you probably have heard of DMARC I, mean, I didn't even know the, the full acronym meant, but it's DMark. Segment and segregate networks and functions. Limit unnecessary lateral communications. So those—that's the advice. But what is Emote? So I'm borrowing this from Malwarebytes. Malwarebytes is, of course, um, a a anti malware software that you can use to help protect your machines. So <coughs> let's talk about email. Uh, emotet malware you may have heard about emotet in the news what is it ancient egyptian king your teenage sister's favorite emo band we're afraid not the emotet banking trojan was first identified by security researchers in 2014 emotet was originally designed as a banking malware that attempted to sneak onto your computer and steal sensitive and private information so we were we've heard of some of these already um Later versions of the software saw the addition of spamming and malware delivery services, including other banking trojan. Emotet uses functionality that helps the software evade detection by some anti-malware products. Emotet uses worm-like capabilities to help spread to other connected computers. And this is why I say uh, anomaly-based anti-malware, because signature-based depends on you making sure that your malware is up to date and that anti-malware is up to date and that that software is providing an update for it anomaly base is saying, hey, this is not normal. We need to to stop this before it does any damage. This helps in distribution of malware. This functionality has led to uh, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, to conclude that Emotet is one of the most costly and destructive malware affecting government and private sectors, individuals, and organizations, and costing upwards of $1 million per incident to clean up. So what is it? Emotet is a Trojan that is primarily spread through spam emails. Mal spam. The infection may arrive either via malicious script, macro enabled document files, or malicious link. EmailTet emails may contain familiar branding designed to look into a legitimate email. tech may try to persuade users to click the malicious files by using tempting language about your invoice, payment details, or possibly an upcoming shipment from well known parcel companies. So we've talked about this before. These are phishing attempts, and uh, they're using fear or uh, emotional responses, hopefully, to get you to click through. Emotet has gone through a few iterations. Early versions arrived as malicious JavaScript file. Later versions evolved to use macro-enabled documents to retrieve the virus payload from command and control center, CNC, servers run by the attackers. Emotet uses a number of tricks to try and prevent detection. And analysis. Notably, Emotet knows if it's running inside a virtual machine and will lay dormant if it detects sandbox environment, which is a tool cybersecurity researchers use to d- observe malware within a safe, controlled space. So, interesting. Emotet also uses CNC service to receive updates. This works in same way as the operating system updates on your PC and can happen seamlessly and without any outward signs. This allows the attackers to install updated versions of the software, install additional malware such as other banking trojans, or to act as a dumping ground for stolen information such as financial credentials, usernames, and passwords, and email addresses. So, um, interesting interesting to point out there that they do update. If you have some DNS filtering going on, you might detect that updating. The primary distribution method for Emotet is through mouse spam, as we mentioned earlier. Um, that ransacks your contacts list and sends itself to your friends so you may have gotten friends fe- uh f- sorry friends female coworkers clients anybody in your contacts list so you may have gotten an email from someone and said hey this doesn't look right and I've talked about this in a in a episode of the proactive Cybersecurity daily um where a client of mine did get an email like that but he questioned it because i've i've sh- taught him to question it and um you know the person the other the sender did say yes i I have a um Malware, didn't say malware, so I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I have, uh, you know, I, I have my emails being compromised and it's spreading. Since these emails are coming from your hijacked email account, the emails look less like spam and, and the recipients feeling safer, more inclined to click bad URLs and download affected files. Question everything. Think before you click. If a connected network is present, email test spreads using a list of common passwords, guessing its way onto other connected systems and brute force attack. So notice that common password. Stop using password one, two, three. If password if the password is to all important human resources server is simply password, then it's likely emotet will find its way there. Researchers initially thought emotet also spread using the eternal blue double pulsar vulnerabilities which were responsible for wanna cry and not petcha attacks. We know now that isn't the case. What led researchers to this conclusion was the fact that TrickBot, which is another banking Trojan, Children often spread by Emotet makes use of the Eternal Blue exploit to spread itself across a given network. It was Trickbot, not Emotet, taking advantage of the Eternal Blue double pulsar vulnerabilities. Um, then it goes on to talk about the history and who does it target. So everyone is a target of Emotet, um, and how can you protect yourself from Emotet? Keep your computer endpoints up to date with the latest patches from Microsoft Windows. Trickbot is often delivered as a secondary Emotet payload, and we now and we know Trickbot relies. On the windows internal blue vulnerability to do its dirty work so patch that vulnerability before the cyber criminals can take advantage of it don't download suspicious attachments or click a shady looking link email tech can't get the initial foothold on your system or network if you avoid the suspect emails take the time to educate your users on how to spot mousepam. spam educate yourself and your users on creating a strong password while you're at it use two-factor or multi-factor authentication and how and you can protect yourself and your users from emotet with a robust cyber security program that includes multi-layered protection um and then of course there's an advertisement for malwarebytes malwarebytes is a good program so if if you are in the market or don't trust the software you're using then malwarebytes is the best bet is not the best i wouldn't say the best bet they're a good bet um how can i remove emotet so if you suspect emotet has been is on your computer you need to disconnect from network immediately you need to disconnect from the internet immediately once isolated proceed to patch and clean the infected system realistically once you have a malicious content on your computer it's almost impossible to remove it while Windows is running you are going to either one of two things you can do you can do a clean install you or one of three things you could do a clean install you can restore from a backup or you can um, the problem with restoring from a, a backup is you may not know if emotet was on your system at that point. So clean install, restore your files, or um scanning from another device. So in other words, Windows isn't booted up, you use another device to scan, which is usually the method I use. Um clean install is, is a last-ditch effort. And last bit of uh Hot topic here, Microsoft and Google just can't agree on proposed ban on facial recognition. Google CEO Sundar Pichai has expressed support for Europe's proposed temporary ban on facial recognition, but Microsoft's top lawyer, Brad Smith, has cautioned against using a meat cleaver for what should be a surgical operation. The two tech execs on Monday responded to the European Commission's proposal to ban the use of facial recognition in public spaces for three to five years or until sufficient risk assessment and risk management frameworks can be developed. Pashai on Monday wrote that there were real concerns about the potential negative consequences of AI, from deepfakes to nefarious uses of facial recognition, and argued for sensible regulation that got the right balance between opportunities of AI and its potential harms, which I think is a good thing. Speaking at a conference in Brussels on Monday, Pashai said it was important for governments to tackle regulatory questions over facial recognition, and more broadly, AI soon, sooner rather than later, and that... The ban can be immediate, but maybe there's a waiting period before we really think about how it can be used. Pashay ag- argues that EU can adapt existing legislation, such as the GDPR, to manage the risks of AI and facial recognition technology. He also said regulation should be used to back up AI principles, such as those outlined by Google last year, in which it committed not to release AI that could harm people. Accountability is an important part of our AI principles. We want our systems to be accountable and explainable, and we test it for safety, which I told the think tank Bruegel, which organized the conference. Um, I think inevitably doing the w- that we assume it will involve human agency and humans to review it, and we specifically mentioned we want these systems to be accountable to society at large, and I think regulation should play a role in that as well. European Commission acknowledges in its proposal that a temporary ban on official recognition would be a far-reaching measure that might – hamper the development and uptake of this technology. Therefore, it would prefer to use existing regulatory instruments available under GDPR. So I don't know how you can, that. that's going to be tough to do under GDPR, in my opinion. Microsoft Vice President and Chief Legal Counsel Brad Smith has previously called for regulation on the use of facial recognition. However, yesterday he cautioned against the European Commission's temporary ban. Smith said facial recognition was useful for NGOs to find missing children, Reuters reported, which is a good point. I'm really reluctant to say that let's stop people from using technology in a way that will reunite families when it can help them do it, he said. The second thing I would say is you, you don't ban it if you actually believe there's a reasonable alternative that will enable us to, say, address this problem with a scalpel instead of a meat cleaver. Smith has previously argued that facial recognition laws should require tech companies to provide transparent documentation that explains the capabilities and limitations of their facial recognition tech. He aired his opinions on the technology in December 2018 in the wake of employee protests against Microsoft's work developing facial recognition technology for U.S. immigration and customs enforcement, which, you know, that's a different topic altogether. His, his point of finding a, a kidnapped child is, is, is a really good point. While Smith opposes the EC's proposed temporary ban of facial recognition, his other views on regulating the technology aren't that different. The European Commission has proposed voluntary labelling requirements on public authorities that use the technology, as well as mandatory risk-based requirements for its use in healthcare and trans- transport and predictive policing. policing sorry, Smith has, called for res- res- Smith has called for legislation that mandates impact assessments for using the technology, notifying the public when facial recognition is in use, and a requirement for people to give consent to their technology's use when they're entering premises has also called for laws restricting the use of facial recognition when monitoring people of interest in public spaces and that this use of technology would only be available with a court order or allowed with a court order. The White House earlier this month called on Europe to avoid heavy-handed innovation-killing models and to consider a similar approach to the U.S.'s, which discourages federal agencies from taking regulatory actions that hamper AI innovation and growth. So it's pretty interesting. That is on ZDNet. You can go read it there. Um, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, I don't know how the GDPR can manage that. It's, it would be tough to, to oversee and manage any potential violations of GDPR. I understand what both sides are saying. Um, I don't know that you could slow it down at this point. It's, it's kind of gotten kind of starting to grow on its own. It's grown it's grown legs and moving on its own. It's a little scary because you go watch Terminator and you say, "Okay, we're not that far off," but at the same time, it there there are positive uses, of positive use cases for AI, especially in cameras around the world. Is it uh, an invasion of privacy? Probably. Are we? Do we have any privacy anymore? I'm not so sure. When we see all these breaches, you know, Microsoft breach, Google breach, healthcare breaches, everybody gets breached. It's hard to say there's any privacy anymore. So, food for thought and uh we're going to move on to our HIPAA education piece. All right, for HIPAA education this week, we're going to talk about filing a complaint. This will be quick this week. If you believe that a HIPAA-covered entity or its business associate violated your or someone else's health information, privacy rights, or committed another violation of the privacy, security, or breach notification rules, you may file a complaint with the Office of Civil Rights. The OCR can investigate complaints against covered entities, health plans, health care clearinghouses, or health care providers that conduct certain transactions electronically and their business associates. So as an example, I am a business associate. So if you believe that I violated HIPAA, you could file a complaint. You could file a complaint online. This, I'm reading this from hhs.gov by the way. So you could file a complaint online. You could just search for on Google search for filing a HIPAA complaint and you'll see the, um, the link there to file a complaint online. The complaint process, anyone can file a complaint. Um, and it needs to be filed in writing, email, fax, or via the OCR complaint portal. You name the covered entity or business associate involved. You know, you may if you if it's a covered entity, you may not know who the business associates are, and it may very well be the business associate's fault of a if there is a breach. But uh, and you know, the example would be um, I don't remember who it was now, but there was a breach a few weeks ago where mailings went out with the information in the in the uh, clear window, rather than the address, it was um, Social Security number. So, you know that's a breach. But that was done by a third party that was sending the mailing out, billing a company. It wasn't done by the healthcare provider. So you may not know that you file the breach, you file the uh, complaint, and then they research it. Be filed within 180 days of when you knew that the act or emission complained or of occurred. OCR may extend the 180-day period if you can show good cause. So in other words, if you weren't aware initially after six months and you found out at seven months, then they would probably extend it. HIPAA prohibits retaliation. So this is important. There was a case. um, Well, I'll get to that in a moment. Under HIPAA, an entity cannot retaliate against you for filing a complaint. You should notify OCR immediately in the event of retaliatory action. So that's. Uh, That's important. File a health information privacy complaint online, and there's a link to it. And then if you want to do it in any other manner, all the links are there. Um, And what information you need to include is there. Um, What I was going to say before, it wasn't exactly applicable, but there was, um, you need to be careful about filing a complaint. Because if you're filing a complaint just to get somebody in trouble, you know, maybe you had a bad visit with a doctor and you just want to file a HIPAA complaint and say, you know, they're, they're not doing their job you know, that they leaked my information, whatever it is. Um, you should not do that because there was a case in Georgia, I believe it was Georgia, where a man did that. It turns out it was his, the person he did the complaint about was his ex-girlfriend, I believe. And turns out they, so they investigated and they determined that the he was lying. And he is looking at some time now. Um, what can you expect? So how does the OCR investigate a health information, privacy, and security compliant? Um, OCR carefully reviews all health information, privacy, and security complaints. Under the law, OCR only may take action on complaints if your rights were violated by a covered entity or business associate. You file a complaint within 180 days of the violation. And then what happens after the investigation? At the end of the investigation, OCR issues a letter describing the resolution of the investigation. If OCR determines that a covered entity or business associate may not have complied with the HIPAA rules, that entity or business associate must voluntarily comply with the HIPAA rules, take corrective action, agree to a settlement. So, like I said earlier, if they're issued guidance by OCR and they, you know, that's their get-out-of-jail-free card, follow that guidance. They should follow that guidance, and if they don't, then they're looking at a settlement and corrective action plan. All right, last up on the docket. It was a quiet week for HIPAA breach notifications. There was only two. A phishing attack reported by Adventist Health Sonora in California has discovered an unauthorized individual has gained access to the email account of a hospital associate and potentially viewed patient information. The email account breach was detected by Adventist Health Sonora's information security team on September 30th. Immediate action has was taken to secure the compromised Office 365 account. I'm not sure why they put that it was Office 365. I don't know if they're taking shots at Microsoft, but um, that tells me you did not have multi-factor authentication turned on. And an investigation was launched to determine the extent of the breach. The investigation confirmed that access to Office 365 account was gained following a response to a phishing email and that it was an isolated incident. No other email accounts or systems were affected. The purpose of the attack appears to have been to redirect invoice payments and defraud hospital and its vendors rather than obtain sensitive patient information. This is, and this is under increase as well. So uh, you need to be aware of that too. They don't usually target hospitals, it's usually municipalities, things like that. According to Adventist Health Sonora, a comprehensive review of affected. Account revealed on October 14, 2019, that the account contained the protected health information of 2,653 patients. The types of information exposed included names, dates of birth, medical record numbers, health insurance information, hospital account numbers, and medical information related to the care provided at the hospital. No evidence was uncovered to suggest any patient information was acquired by the attacker, but out of an abundance of caution, affected patients have been notified and offered complimentary identity theft protection services for 12 months. Because we've never heard that response before. Uh, And then finally, Great Plains Health has recovered 80% of systems impacted by November 2019 ransomware attack. Great Plains Health in North Platte, Nebraska, experienced a ransomware attack in November 2019, which saw its network encrypted. The decision was taken not to pay the ransom and instead to restore systems from backups, which was a smart decision, has been a time-consuming and painstaking process, but hospital officials have announced that the process is now 80% completed. Restoration of systems has prior to, was prioritized with the most important patient systems restored. First, it took two weeks for critical patient systems to be recovered. Members of staff worked around the clock to ensure systems were restored in the shortest possible timeframe. Throughout the attack and recovery process, patients continued to receive medical services and no patients were turned away or redirected to other healthcare facilities. Hospital officials have now announced that all major IT systems have now been brought back online and the ransomware tech is no longer having an impact on any kind of patient care. Only archives now need to be restored, which contain information rarely used by the hospital. So no generic um, out of an abundance of caution response there. And it doesn't say how many people were impacted. Uh, so that'll be, we'll see where that goes. I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the future. The good thing is they did decided not to pay the ransom, which is great for two reasons primarily. One, if you pay, you make yourself a bigger target going forward. And two, um, if you pay, there's no, well really three reasons. Two, if you pay, there's no guarantee you will get your your files decrypted. And three, the only way we're going to stop the scourge of ransomware is by making it not profitable to the attacker. So once they realize they're not going to get money, they're going to stop. And I don't, there is no other way at this point. So that's going to do it for this episode of the Proactive IT podcast. Hope it was useful. Hopefully it was helpful to you. But until next week, stay secure and enjoy your weekend, everyone.